Welcome to the Secret Illness Podcast. My name is Liz Smith and in this podcast series we're going to be exploring the mysterious world of the human mind through the lens of obsessive compulsive disorder. actually know very little about how the human brain works. It's one of the big mysteries that still exists in the world of science and yet it's our brains, our minds that make us who we are. So what happens when your own mind starts to distort your thoughts? In this episode we're going to take a deep dive into Steph's personal story of her OCD. I've communicated a lot with Steph over recent months. She's a very active volunteer on the Secret Illness Project, but we live on different sides of the Atlantic, so all our communication has been through email and social media, and we hadn't actually ever spoken to each other when I Skyped her for this interview. So I'm standing by waiting for my first interview with Steph from Canada. I kind of wonder what she's going to sound like. She's going to sound very Canadian. I'm probably going to sound very English to her. Okay, she's ready. Hello. <laughs> so funny. I feel like I know you and we've never spoken. So that's Steph. She lives in Toronto with her partner and she's an academic. So my work is academic. I'm currently doing a PhD. Before going back to school to do my PhD, I was working in a health research environment. So do you remember the first moment where you suddenly realised you had OCD? I wouldn't say there's a moment when I knew that I had OCD, that was kind of a process, but there is a discrete moment in time when something happened to me and I didn't know at the time what it was, but I knew it was bad. (laughs) It was a morning sitting at my computer, thumbing through Facebook or social media or whatever, and something that I saw made me think of something in the past And this what-if thought, it's like I could almost see the thought just like traipsing across my brain, just like hopping right through from one side to the other. And this thought absolutely terrified me. And I, in that moment, just felt like from my core up through my face, everything started to feel hot. And I just had to put my head down on my desk. I felt like physically and mentally overcome. And I really thought that this thing that I had thought of was a terrible mistake I might have made and I could not get it out of my head. And it was sort of as soon as I had registered that one thought, I started thinking of everything that could happen if that were indeed the case, if that mistake that I thought I might have made were true. And so that to me is the moment that like the spiral began. What was the nature of the thing you thought you'd done wrong? To be honest, I'm still a little afraid to like completely verbal. Well, not not that I'm afraid to verbalize it, but I wouldn't want it to be out in the world, like to state exactly what I fear. Even though I'm relatively fine now, there's that glimmer within that fear of, well, maybe someone else would look at that and then they would actually think there's something wrong. I wonder if it would help frame it in people's minds if you could tell us what kind of category of thought it was. So basically, I mean, the general nature of the thought 
It had to do with some work I had done in the past. And the thought was, what if I didn't check or verify something that needed to be checked? And this could have huge ethical implications. It's very common with OCD to find yourself performing compulsions as a way of finding some kind of relief from your anxiety. Some compulsions are more overt than others, like repeatedly washing your hands. But there are less obvious compulsions, like constantly seeking reassurance. And we'll hear a bit more about Steph's reassurance seeking a bit later. But one of Steph's other compulsions was to confess. So I would contact people who I thought related to these fears I had of having made a mistake in the past, who I thought I needed to divulge this concern to. People I actually hadn't spoken with in a number of years. So it was it was pretty mortifying to me to have to to feel like I had to call them, contact them, and then convey something that I was afraid I had done wrong. But but that fear or that embarrassment was the lesser of two evils in a way because I felt like, okay, I'll suffer the embarrassment versus suffering the fear that I should tell this person something if we need to act on it to rectify it now. So when you um, called up these people you haven't spoken to in ages and confessed to them, how did they react? The first person I spoke with really was just like, this is nothing to worry about. And that provided me a huge amount of relief Initially, now I thought, well, if he doesn't think it's anything to worry about, gosh, really, what am I worrying about? And that helped me to kind of put it to bed for a few days. (laughs) And then I thought of other things, you know, related to that same thought that sort of brought it back. You know, oh, well, maybe he didn't understand this. Maybe I didn't convey this clearly. Maybe he forgot that we had done it in this way. And if he knew that or if he remembered that, maybe he would actually reconsider The second person she confessed to was her former employer and mentor. I was curious to hear what it was like from her perspective when she received this call. So Steph put us in touch. Do you remember it distinctly, that call? Yeah, so she had emailed me and told me that she wanted to talk and wanted to set up a time to talk to me. Were you surprised by what she then told you? I was surprised because, well, for, for a few reasons. Number one the level of her anxiety was quite acute and I could tell she was really distressed. And then the nature of her concerns were quite bizarre. And I remember listening to them thinking, my word, how could you possibly be worried about this? You know, we'd done research together and she was concerned about data. It's almost a little bit like I don't want to even say it now, but I was worried that I had something that I shouldn't have had on like a USB stick. And in all likelihood, it wasn't something, I mean, looking at it now, I can be like, okay, you know, that's not even something I should have been worried about. I became obsessed with making sure that I either didn't have this thing or that I knew where it was or whatever. This might be a good point to bring in Steph's partner. I asked him if he remembered this particular obsession. Okay, that. Okay, good. Now it's all coming back. That point was, let's just say that may have been at the height of it all, maybe, just before finally, like, I think she really realized herself that there's something wrong. She asked me to look for this USB, and I said, what's this USB? Well, 
I think there is some information that's confidential from my previous work, and I think it's in a USB, and it, uh, if someone gets into it, you know, all hell will break loose, who knows, the world will come to an end or something like that. So I had the poor guy searching through, you know, bins and this and that to try to find this USB or SD card or whatever I thought it, you know, this thing could be on, and this, this went on for a while. So we went through each USB, you know, checked each one. There must have been at least 10, at least. And they weren't in any of them, but she's like, are there any more? And I'm thinking, no, I'm pretty sure that's it. See, that was the mistake. I said, I'm pretty sure that's it. If there's a slight chance of maybe one USB still not accounted for, well, then that's that. And I was still, like I said, I'm, I told her, I'm 99.9% sure there are no other USBs. We've looked at them all, but it didn't matter. There's that point, point, point 0.0001% chance. And she was, she could not, she just couldn't function. Just when I thought it was, you know, okay, I'm, I'm fine, you know, everything's secure. We'd go to a movie and come home and I'd be like, no, we have to look here. We have to do this. I wasn't able to accept that everything was okay. Did you think it was a good idea for Steph to talk to her mentor at that point? At that point, I was almost feeling tired. Not sick and tired, but just feeling uh, exhausted about it and almost like not giving up, but um, not arguing it. I was almost at the point, well, you know what? Okay, then, you know, she's a very sensible person and she'll talk some sense into her. I guess when I contacted her, I really felt like she could give me the answer. I, I had this list of things, and I felt like if I could run through these list of things and she could tell me they were okay, I could let it go. She had this list as well of all these concerns that she needed to go through with me. And we probably talked for 45 minutes to an hour. And over the course of that time, I, I think I was able to offer her some reassurance. She did seem to settle down a little bit. After the talk, I asked how it went, and Steph was like, ah, oh, it's great. And I was happy for Steph. Steph was happy for Steph. Yay. But you could probably guess, Liz, how long did that last? And that did help for about three days. <laughs> and, then, and then I started thinking again. He's like, oh, but what if she didn't understand I meant this? Or, you know, I left this detail out so she doesn't have the complete picture. So if she knew this, maybe she would say it wasn't okay. I think it's interesting actually that you are a scientist because scientists are very logical. Yes. Do you not see how illogical these thoughts are? So I think it's a double-edged sword because yes, OCD logic is really illogic, but I would say one of my strengths is critical analysis. So essentially I feel like my OCD was like critical analysis and overdrive. Stephanie was a person who is very detail-oriented and to do research, to analyze data, very meticulous in what she does. And so those traits, uh, I agree, it is a double-edged sword. Um, it's just about trying to not let um, that one side of the sword become too extreme. It didn't seem illogical at the time because I felt like I was simply doing what I tend to do well, which is think of everything that needs to be thought of so something is done 
right by procedure, by protocol, whatever. At the time when my OCD was really at its peak, I could not see the fears or my responses to them as illogical. Your partner, did he not lose patience completely and tear his hair out? Um, I think he wanted to. He is an, a man of incredible patience. And I gotta say, I'm, I, I don't take him for granted. Yeah, he didn't lose patience with me then. I think he was just really concerned with making sure that I could feel okay. It's interesting, like, looking back, you know, I think there were these traces of OCD all along, but just nothing that crossed over that clinical threshold to impair me. But what was there, I think, it did... It did affect me, it did impair our relationship in a way. So a lot of the thoughts that I had were really around like, you know, rules and protocols and, you know, making sure everything is done by the book, that sort of thing. And he often was made to feel, because of my behavior, that he was doing things wrong. And he started to question himself. So I don't know if I'd be questioning her first. I'd be questioning myself saying, well, maybe it's supposed to be like this. Maybe I should be, you know, responding this way according to her. You know, as you you battle yourself. I respect my significant other. I, I think she's so intelligent and you know so smart. So I figure, you know, she must be on something I don't know. And I started questioning myself, which is a whole other story. You know, there is a glimmer of truth or reality in all of these fears. If you really look at these kinds of concerns, they're, they're probably, you know, you can see that they've got a seed of realism in there, but they kind of, you can see that they've churned into this really extreme case. Like theoretically, right, we can't get rid of doubt 100% or we can't have 100% certainty. And I think OCD is always about looking for that 100% certainty. And I think OCD recovery is learning to accept that you can't have that certainty 100%. So your question was about whether I could recognize these thoughts as illogical. Now I can see that they're pretty out there. She was concerned that she was going to somehow ruin lives. But I think what the key to my recovery has been, has been learning to accept that okay, maybe there is like a one in a million chance that this thing could happen, but I can accept that now. Those thoughts were just taking over everything else. Yeah, it was like I was a shell of myself at that point in time. Like I was moving through daily life. I could physically do everything I needed to do and I, could, I was still doing my work, but it just was the, the energy that this like, you know, part of my brain that couldn't turn off. It was just sucking all this energy and then throwing these constant kind of pangs of fear. Like, it would just be churning, churning, going through this, like, analysis of uh, scenarios. And then all of a sudden, it might strike upon something that, oh, I hadn't thought of that before. And then, oh, my gosh. And then, you know, I'm really reeled back in. Are these thoughts going on in your mind as you're teaching? I think I put a lot of energy into suppressing them, you know, which I think I could sort of manage it for what I had to do. And then they would just kind of like spring back up 
in those other moments. So, you know, I could go in and run my tutorials, and, but everything at that point in my life felt really hard. Like, I, I could do it, but it just felt like I also wasn't sleeping. I would be up, like, very, very late. So everything just felt hard. And I think, you know, certainly it would make me feel very terrible if I felt like I let the students down. I don't think I did um, because a lot of people around me really had no idea anything was wrong. People were pretty surprised when I took medical leave and when I revealed my diagnosis. Um, Like, I think I was able to really put up a facade. What do you do at that point when you see this person who's so important to you about to just break down? You know, it's tough. I'm looking back at it now. I'm just reflecting on it. Leading up to it, it it was rough. Our relationship, it, it was just really difficult for a few years. You know, he's a very gentle man, and I think he was a wonderful caregiver for her. He gave up pretty much everything to take care of her during this period and I'm grateful to him for that and uh, and I think it was a was a sign of the strength of their relationship. That was Steph's dad. We're going to hear a bit more about his role in this shortly. The quality of the line when I interviewed him wasn't great so those moments when he sounds like a drunk cyborg that's just the technology scrambling his words. But back to Steph's partner. It was hard or I was not sleeping well, I, I, geez, looking back now, I, I just couldn't really function myself as well. It, it, I don't know how to express it where you can really get a good feel of how difficult it was for, the, for any significant other. I'm sure there are others out there that wouldn't mind talking about it too, because as well as people don't see um, that the significant other also goes through a lot. Because it was so hard for me with all, all we're going through, which strains the relationship, and I'm trying to make, this is before I even understood what OCD was, and trying to understand why that person is the way they are. Why is what I see making, that's common sense, not making sense to her? Every day this goes on. So how did it come about that Steph finally sought help and got the diagnosis? It wasn't just me saying, look, you need to seek help or something. It was her making that decision saying, wow, something's wrong. Now that she said that, I almost felt a relief too, or a relief and a strength as well, a beginning of a strength between us at that point when she realized herself that something is, something's up. I guess in the same way that she takes on the work that she does, she took this on. I'm just so amazed at how, how she's been able to... Uh, accomplish what she's accomplished in overcoming some of these issues. Fortunately for me, I I tend to be quite assertive, and I was able to really advocate for for getting treatment, but it it wasn't uh, as easy as I would hope it would be. So, for example, I went in to see a family doctor, and I said, something's wrong, I need a psychiatric referral, and the doctor basically gave me a list of 40 therapists and said, you know, go on your way. And that was probably the least helpful thing someone could do when someone's at a breaking point. (laughs) You know, I was like, I could do better on Google than this two-page spreadsheet you just handed me. So I just booked another appointment with that same doctor, and I just went in there. I said, look, I am going on medical leave. If I don't resolve this, 
uh, during the four months that I'm on leave. I am simply not coming back to my PhD. I need a psychiatric referral to the hospital. That's what I need. And she gave it to me. So I basically wasn't going to get an appointment until the end of my leave. But I had to take the leave because I simply could not persist. I, I did have an awareness at that point that just pushing forward and trying to keep going was going to do me damage, more damage, um, and I needed to just stop. Luckily, they had a new psychiatrist that came on board with an empty schedule, and so I was able to get in a bit earlier, and she assessed me and gave me the diagnosis. I should also say that the, the family doctor I did see did prescribe me medication. The psychiatrist then doubled the dose of my medication, and the psychiatrist then referred me to uh, group therapy for OCD, and then I still saw the psychiatrist every four to six weeks, um, and then I did have some individual therapy for about eight sessions, I think. I do feel lucky that I was able to get sort of multi-pronged treatment. The group was really incredible, I have to say. Everyone had really different OCD issues, but everyone could relate to the same thinking errors or distorted thinking that is at the root of OCD. I think just being in a room with people who get it, it was huge for me. Coming out of that, I definitely had some tools that helped me, and I, I, I was feeling better, but I certainly wasn't over the hump because I think the limitation of the group therapy is you don't get that one-on-one -on -one help to deal with your specific OCD fears. So the sort of specific vein of cognitive behavioral therapy that's used for OCD is this exposure with response prevention. It's essentially like facing your fears. So you develop a hierarchy of working up to the thing that you're most afraid of. So you start with a piece of that that causes you some discomfort, but isn't like, you know, on a scale of 1 to 100, it isn't at 100. And so that was what the individual therapy really helped me to do, was actually to develop, you know, this list of things that I needed to practice to expose myself to these fears that I had. Um, so that gradually they provoked less and less anxiety. It was it was amazing. It was, like I said, it was like this huge relief on both ends, on her end and on my end, because if if you could picture how oh how how wrung it was our relationship, you know, just wringing that towel for those few years, it's like it was just unwrung. She, when she started the medication, she didn't take uh, such a high dose. Mm -hmm. And she also combined that with the cognitive behavioral therapy. So within the first few weeks of that, things were, it was almost like night and day. Mm -hmm. she, she, she was feeling great. I was feeling great. And, and it's not just because the medication is uh, increasing her serotonin levels. It's, it's also the understanding of OCD which as well, it's like, wow. It's, it's so if she were to still, even after she started her therapy and so on, I mean, she still had little, let's say little moments. I would handle it different as far as knowing that I understand why she's having that moment. Mm -hmm. And I understand that if I were to ex try to explain to her, that's not logical what you're thinking, try and look at it this way. I understand now that it's not a question of she just doesn't get it. Am I, am I explaining it wrong? No, that's how OCD works. I was wondering too how this had affected her mentor. 
before I agreed to interview you, I, I really felt I had to talk to Stephanie because I had never really talked to her about those calls. So the conversations you've had in preparation for this with her, how, how did that feel? Well, actually, it felt great because when Stephanie called me those few times, she had said to me that she, her counselor had told her not to talk to me. I realized that, that something was up, i.e. that her distress was um, becoming more problematic and that I was feeling like somehow I might be contributing to her distress. I had never brought up the calls because I didn't know if I was somehow triggering something for her and I, I didn't really understand what was going on. So when she contacted me and asked me to be part of this interview, I was pleased because it opened a door for us to have a conversation. And, um, and we laughed a little bit about it. I mean, in retrospect, that's the thing about, I think, this illness is that you find yourself in these situations where your worries or concerns really are um, quite unusual, but clearly was very, very distressing for Stephanie at the time. So we could kind of laugh about it, but also just say, wow, that was, it was quite the time. Do you think it's impacted positively or negatively your professional relationship in any way? No, it's interesting. I mean, I think that um, my relationship with Steph now has a chance to grow into a different kind of relationship. I think now that she's certainly feeling better now that we've had this conversation, I think we're, we're at a point where we can have a closer relationship um, because it's also based on an understanding of our mutual interests professionally, but also really having been through this in a way together as well and, and having it out in the open, it's so much better. One of the challenges when it comes to helping people with OCD is that it isn't often out in the open. One really interesting thing about getting my diagnosis is that all of a sudden I've learned there's OCD in my family and oh. no one has talked about it. I had a great aunt. I think she had a type of sort of moral scrupulosity. Like she gave everything she had away and she was never, never felt like she could do enough. And everyone just thought she was peculiar. My aunt Sarah, uh, she lived in the town where I lived and we were very close. But, you know, she obviously had some real issues. My mother always refer referred to her as being odd or peculiar, you know, to sort of describe those issues. But, uh, you know, looking back, she definitely had exhibited those kinds of issues. Oh my goodness, my great aunt must have suffered so much and none of us knew, you know, what she was dealing with. And I've learned that there's um, and actually, maybe I shouldn't really talk about this too much because, to be honest, like I've learned about it, but no one is open about it, <laughs> which, you know, I've had one cousin who we've been in touch. He, he actually reached out to me when he saw me posting some of the secret illness stuff on Facebook. And we've started talking, which has been really neat. Um, but some of the other relatives that I've now sort of heard through the grapevine, you know, it's not really an open thing. But coming back to my dad, I actually do think my dad has OCD. And actually, I reflected on myself and realized that I have certain uh, OCD behaviors uh, that I've exhibited uh, all the way back to my childhood and have actually been looking uh, in more depth into my behavior and realized there are some of them in that affect my quality of life, but obviously nowhere near to the depth that Steph had, uh, has experienced. He's been 
you know, my source of reassurance. But I almost think, too, maybe some of my OCD thought patterns, that sort of thing has also been reinforced in my relationship with him. Like, it's very enmeshed. And now, um, so you've, uh, do you still have therapy? Do you still take medication? I'm still taking the medication. Um, I haven't done any psychological therapy since I finished the, the individual sessions. I do feel like the exposure therapy, you know, it's like going to the gym for your brain. Like, I do feel like I have been able to, you know, retrain parts of my brain to think differently to a certain extent. And I feel like, you know, knowledge is power. Like, even just being able to recognize certain ways of thinking as problematic has given me a lot of agency and being able to identify it and say, okay, I know what that is. I know the medication has also helped me a lot. So there's a little part of me that worries, well, if I taper off the medication, could something just come rushing back like it did that one morning when this whole thing started? Since we recorded this, Steph has actually tapered off her medicine and is now off medication completely. She said that's going well, that she definitely notices certain thoughts more than she did when on the medication. But she feels like her retrained brain is doing what it's supposed to do for the most part. And she doesn't get sucked into those thoughts. How do you feel now having done this interview? I feel good. You know, I think, and maybe this is still, you know, I say I'm in recovery, but, you know, there are still little remnants of things here and there, I think the difference between being in recovery and being in it for me is being able to recognize those things and, and, and say, okay, I know what that is, I can let it go. Like, I'll probably think about this conversation after and I'll be like, oh, I wish I had added this or, you know, I wish I had said this differently or whatever. And I did get an email the next day from Steph expressing some concerns that she might not have explained some things correctly. This brings us to the end of this podcast. I'd like to thank Steph, her partner, her dad and mentor for sharing their experiences so honestly with us. I'd also like to thank Mitch Grusing for composing the music. Mitch also lives with OCD and is part of the Secret Illness Volunteer Creative Team. If, like Mitch, you have creative skills and would like to collaborate on one of our projects, or if you have ideas for future podcasts, or like Steph, you'd be up for being interviewed. It doesn't matter where you live, this is a global project. So please do get in touch with us via the website at thesecretillness.com.